Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and National Security. I'm Shannon Nash, the host of the channel. And today we'll be talking to Karen Greenberg about her new book, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. This fascinating book discusses how the architects of the war on terror transformed American justice into an arm of the security state. It tells the story of law and policy after 9-11, introducing the reader to key players and events, showing that time and again, when liberty and security have clashed, justice has been the victim. Karen Greenberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Karen, I was wondering if we could begin the interview, if you could tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I Since a year after 9-11, I've been working on research and policy uh, thinking about um, the intersection between national security and civil liberties. I founded a university-based think tank at NYU Law School about 14 years ago, and it's a, it was an attempt to provide some kind of thoughtful analysis between those who were mostly security-minded and those who were attentive to human rights, civil liberties, and other things. And little did I know that things like torture, um, and prolonged indefinite detention and military commissions like we have them today would be on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, been a, it's been a very interesting um, ride. I moved the uh, center to, uh, and my work to uh, Fordham Law School uh, about six years ago. So it's still the same basic um, enterprise. And it's, just, it's, it's one of those things where I, I keep thinking we're going to get to the end of it, but we're still there. And it sounds like that's a natural progression into how you came to write Rogue Justice specifically, if you want to elaborate a bit more on that, too. Yeah, so Rogue Justice was my attempt to talk about what I'd witnessed uh, over the course of the 15 years after 9-11. And in particular, my observations about how the courts had or had not functioned when it came to civil liberties issues. The courts, also Congress with some legislation, also the presidents and how they viewed the law. Uh, and basically, it was a story of abdication on the part of the courts when it came to things like surveillance, you know, mass, warrantless, bulk surveillance. When it came to uh, torture, it was about lawyers sort of running oftentimes from what they should have uh, known. Um, in, and of course, you know, this morphed eventually into what we have now, which is the drone policy, which is one of the most uh, significant places where constitutional issues and uh, security issues come into conflict. So um, I wanted to write about that and to really say that all of these things, torture, surveillance, detention, terrorism trials, which is another big part of the book, and, and uh, targeted killings were all of a piece. And that if you looked at them incrementally, you would see that the law had changed in a progression over these 15 years from one to another of these categories so that essentially the Constitution was compromised and remains compromised uh, at the end of this post 9-11 story. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And before we jump right into the book, I wanted to tell the listeners that it's a fascinating read and it's coming at a, a very timely manner as well, which we'll, we'll definitely get into as we move through. Um, so to start right into the first part of the book, if you could set the scene a little bit for us, uh, the 9-11 attacks revealed a breakdown in American intelligence and there was demand for individuals and institutions to find out what went wrong, corrected, and prevent another catastrophe like 9-11 from ever happening again. And I was wondering what role this atmosphere of a state of panic played in shaping how judicial institutions responded to the threat and this breakdown. 
Right. So it's not just judicial institutions. It's this larger concept of of justice, because what the Bush administration and the White House says immediately is, you know, justice will be done. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 unclear what he means by justice, but it's not our courts are going to rise to the occasion and take care of this. By justice, he also meant retribution sort of justice in the larger, more universal sense, not just in an institutional, you know, tied to the judicial system sense. And this is something that's always particularly fascinated me, how nobody particularly questioned that at the time. Okay, let's talk about justice in terms of retribution, revenge, um, counterattack, and justice in terms of how we think about following the laws and deciding guilt and innocence and and determining who the enemy is and who the enemy is not. And one of the takeaways uh, from the immediate post 9-11 reaction from the White House and on down through the government was that everything that happened happened very quickly, which is one of the lessons for today. Mm -hmm. It happened you know, some people could argue it happened within 24 hours, you know, as soon as they decided to draft the authorization for the use of military force. I would argue that it took place over the course of the fall of 2001. And the second lesson from this is that once it happened, it was hard to stop it. And so that's another piece of it. It was not just hard to stop it, but it's been hard to push back against it. There's been very little. There's been some pushback, but not enough as as we're seeing now. And um, so you're right. What happened was prevention became the mantra of the day. But what prevention had meant before 9-11, which was try to figure out who's trying to uh, foment uh, a crime or an attack and what prevention meant after 9-11, which was do everything in your power to see who might um, be willing to conduct a terrorist attack uh, were two very different things. And so mm-hmm. as the country and the justice system geared itself towards uh, a preventive system in a way much more pronounced than they had in the past, certain things began to change. And that had to do with a number of things, one of which is um, it's something that has remained true throughout the war on terror, which is very unfortunate, which is the sense that more is better. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the numbers of people that were rounded up and sent to Guantanamo, 800, the number of people that were rounded up the country and put in detention, thousands, who were later let go because there was no reason for that. And I, I can go on and on and probably will as we go on. But this was a very early sign that there was a sense that our intelligence really had failed us and that we didn't know how to be specific about who we thought might attack us. So instead, we went into this generalized type of um, protective crouch. And it has not served us well. Um, and I think that's something that comes out later in the book. Mm-hmm. And and to go right along with that, can you elaborate on the fact that the policies that were fashioned after 9-11 which curtailed constitutional rights in the name of national security during a time of this unprecedented fear had no natural lifespan. And what were the consequences of that? Yeah, well, well, so uh, I'm, so one of the things that does happen is how long will these emergency powers, so-called emergency powers, be maintained for? And so the Patriot Act, which is passed in Octo- late October of 2001, has a number of clauses in it that, that can sunset over time. And those became issues that civil libertarians uh, focused on tremendously, some of them having to do with surveillance, many of them having to do with the Fourth Amendment issues of search and seizure. And the the interesting thing about those sunset clauses was that in the initial phases, they they did not sunset. But it was more than that. It was that they spawned other policies and other legislation that did not necessarily have sunset clauses, all under the name of the emergency of the war on terror. And what a number of more philosophically minded individuals and a number of lawyers will also argue that this has become what the term for this is a state of exception that has been normalized, something that starts as something for an emergency, something that's an exception, but now we just accept it. And, and, and one clear sign of this is indefinite detention, which is something that President Obama gave indications of as he was running for president that he didn't want to maintain. And yet by uh, the summer of 2009, actually the late spring of 2009, the first spring of his presidency, 
he was giving indefinite detention a place in his analysis of what should happen in terms of the future of Guantanamo. So that would be an example of a state of exception. Let's take these people, let's keep them in detention until we get to, you know, either an end of the hostilities, which now we know won't happen, or um, to some other ending point. Um, The United States does not support um, legally indefinite detention. Um, And so this is this is an, an outlier but it remains there. It remains you know, alive and um, as, as we know. Mm-hmm. And maybe to give some of the listeners who might not be familiar um, some examples, and we, we kind of listed them briefly at the beginning, but maybe some uh, examples of expanded intelligence capabilities established after 9-11 um, in addition to that uh, extended detention and the types of things that privileged intelligence collection over constitutional protections. Yeah. And so this is actually a very interesting story because one of one of the things I want to preface this with that has to do with how uh, how individuals on the outside of the government understand what happened and even many inside the government, but how the general public understands it is how much of this was secret. So it wasn't like, okay, here's the Patriot Act, and therefore we know all the powers that the government had. What happened was, was that inside the Justice Department, which is why so much in this book focuses on the Justice Department, there were lawyers whose task it was, when asked to by the president, the White House, or elsewhere in the executive, when asked, um, was a certain policy they were considering lawful, were supposed to give a, a reasoned legal opinion on it. And a series of legal opinions or memos came out of this department of the, uh, this division of the Department of Justice, legalizing in a new way and in an unprecedented way, a number of things. The most, uh, most well known of these is torture, which of course we didn't find out about until 2004 and into 2005, and we, for many years, we were still finding out things about it, actually, for the next decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing with surveillance. The surveillance authorities that existed inside the Patriot Act, uh, that were authorized by the Patriot Act, um, were used in a way secretly, although authorized by memos that were not um, made known. Um, so secret memos or secret programs that we didn't find out about until, you know, several years ago. And those are the programs uh, among which Edward Snowden uh, revealed when he, you know, uh, disclosed what he had uh, found out. And so among these programs was the ability to um, listen in to the conversations and the uh, Internet communications in, of, of, of Americans. But more the one that had really caught attention and the ones that's been most uh, in headlines is the ability to, uh, without a warrant and in a in a in a massive way um, to listen to to note and collect information on metadata and metadata is who calls who, when you know, who's at one end, who's at the other end, how long does the conversation go on, what's the sequence of conversations, you know, who do you call after you call that person or after somebody calls you. And although many would argue that this is not, um, th- this doesn't tell you anything because you don't have the content, o- almost anybody who's who's um, forthcoming about this, both in the intelligence field and outside of it, will say that this information is incredibly important because it tells you who your network is, who you call when somebody tells, like if you call a doctor and then you call, uh, this is the the um, example that's always given. If you call a doctor and then you call an abortion clinic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so it can tell you an awful lot and, and did and was in 2015 declared illegal by an appellate court in New York. And then a month later, the Patriot Act sunsetted. But that's that's the, you know. Um, that's the example that's that's best to point to. Yeah. Okay. And and speaking of the Justice Department, um, how did the Justice Department of Justice crusade to reorganize itself around prevention filter into the courts? And how did this fit with the need to keep sources and methods secure, um, perhaps such as the detail of torture, for example? Yes. So now we're skipping ahead. Um, so I will. Um, um, I'm going to try to give you a. a a big story about this. First, because okay. there are 
There is one major reorganization of the Justice Department, which occurs in 2006 in the middle of George Bush's second uh, term of his presidency. And because the intelligence issues are, as you just said, so sensitive, and because there has to be some kind of understanding between the intelligence agencies and um, the prosecutorial arm of uh, and, and the judicial system, there is um, discomfort that if the United States brings individuals to trial for crimes that ha- of national security or crimes of terrorism, that there could be information revealed that you really don't want revealed in court. So that was one of the issues. The other thing is that there had to be some more leeway. There was a sense among um, national security and justice officials that there needed to be a better conversation between the intelligence communities and law enforcement and, and, and the courts than there had been prior to 9-11, that this was one of the issues. And so um, what over time, what the justice system did was they created a new division and they took pieces of other parts of the justice system to, to, um, to help with this new division, part from the criminal division, part from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act office that, that oversaw warrants that had to do with um, uh, foreign intelligence issues, espionage and terrorism. Um, and, they, and they put them together in one unit that would be a liaison to the intelligence community, to issues the, the intelligence community had about what it could and couldn't do, and to issues about how to massage the relationship between the Justice Department and issues that came under its purview and the intelligence community. And when that happened, it sort of changed the nature of how, and this is something we haven't talked about yet, of how the country was going to do many things, but among them was how it was going to try people suspected of terrorism. And one interesting thing is, and part of me wants to say that the country's changed so much in terms of its understanding of terrorism trials since that period of time that I almost feel like I have to, you know, go back and say, oh, once upon a time there was. But once upon a time before 2001, when there were lethal terrorist attacks um, and terrorist attacks of significance, um, like the... um, like the um, um, uh, it, the the bombing in 1998 of two two U.S. embassies in Africa, um, those individuals would be indicted in federal court in here here in Manhattan uh, actually, and they would be tried. And um, it was they were fascinating trials, and actually they were extremely important for the country because they. They, the, the prosecutors and the defense attorneys had to get to know terrorism and al-Qaeda. They became very important public events um, leading up to the knowledge that we needed to have in the post-9-11 world. By 2006, there were more of these um more of these trials, not necessarily for lethal acts, but for people who w- the United States was trying to prevent from bringing about terrorist acts and others who had been indicted prior to 9-11 and some who were indicted for 9-11. And so some of these trials start to happen in the courts again. And what the Justice Department is able to do is to create a sort of overview, umbrella organization that can help with methods and um, protecting intelligence resources and figuring out which cases to bring and how not to bring in it. And the Department of Justice hadn't been completely excluded from the conversation, but they now became into the conversation in a much more national way. And, and, and this is important today because um, now you have, as a director of the FBI, Jim Comey, has said on occasion, they have open investigations into suspected ISIS um, uh, associates um, in uh, 50 states. So what this creation of reorganization of uh, the Department of Justice did, among other things, was to enable that to take place in a way that would have some kind of coherence um, and in which and and so that's one piece of it. The second piece that you asked about was, you know, how did what happened when the courts had to deal with some of the thornier issues like torture? And that is a book in and of itself. But um, but. 
the the bottom line is that over the course of time, torture came up on a number of occasions. It came up on some very early cases that had to do with not torture at CIA black sites, not torture um, at Guantanamo, but torture um, in one case, you know, abroad in Saudi Arabia, in another case, um, um, circumstances of abuse inside, um, just um, inside the United States, but, and also in Afghanistan. And so it wasn't, the torture policy that was being litigated, but the treatment of these individuals when they gave their confessions and the treatment of these individuals just as an entity into it itself played into some of these court cases. And for the most part, the courts early on in 2002, 2003 um, and on just said, look, we're not going to listen to any of this. Uh, we're not going to listen to any of this about um, abuse. W- one court decided that w- a certain individual hadn't been abused, that the scars on his body came from something else than abuse. And um, another individual, they decided to have a plea deal before they ever got to the issue of um, torture. And so they, they batted it away. And then in 2009, um, after Obama had taken office and appointed Eric Holder, his attorney general, Eric Holder came on the scene and said, look, we're going to take the 9-11 defendants who we held at black sites, um, in CIA black sites for a certain period of time. Um, we're going to take those defendants and we're going to move them from Guantanamo, where they currently are, to the federal court system where they belong. And it was a way of saying, look, our courts can do this. We know how to try these cases. We did it in the past. The military commissions are not working. And we're just, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to bring some form of closure to those who are holding accountable for uh, 9-11. The five, five of the um, people involved in the plot of 9-11. And so um, they made arrangements to, they made this announcement that they were going to bring these um, 9-11 uh, defendants here. And um, the, 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 the country was not taking this. And one of the reasons was that in 2009, they had moved one of the detainees from Guantanamo to, um, to um, Manhattan to try him. And it was a, a trial balloon. I mean, that kind of sounds like a pun, but it was a twi- it was a it, it was a test case. They were going to test a case that they'd already tried the embassy uh, bombings trial. They tried it already. Tried um, four of the individuals in two thousand and one, prior to nine eleven, and th- this was another individual accused of participating in that plot. And they were going to bring him to trial uh, in New York to prove that the courts could work, so that they could try others, including the nine eleven. Um, defendants. And torture became a very important part of this trial in many pieces of it. Number one, the defendant uh, had been tortured. And so there was the issue of tortured evidence. And um, number two, um, a witness that the government said was was one of its primary, if not its primary witness. Um, One of the witnesses that came from Tanzania, which is where the defendant um, had lived, uh, this this witness had been found because when the defendant, Ahmed Gailani, was tortured, he gave the name of this witness uh, to law enforcement. And therefore, the, the defense argued that you couldn't use that witness either because he was, in legal terms, the fruit of the poisonous tree, meaning that once you torture, everything that comes out of that is also tainted and can't be brought into court. Right. And so this was a this was a huge milestone and to, for a judge to decide, right? Because there were going to be a number of individuals who, uh, that were going to be brought into federal court. This was the plan that had been tortured at these black sites, as Mr. Gailani had been. Mm-hmm. Um, and the judge ruled that the witness could not um, be brought into the trial because he was indeed the fruit of the poisonous tree. Um, and he also ruled that things about uh, that that the that the evidence that would be brought in would exclude um, the um, issues about torture prior to Mr. Gailani's being in um, um, FBI custody, in U.S. government custody, as opposed to CIA custody. 
FBI custody. Mm-hmm. So he made some very clean and clear decisions at, before the trial even got started. The trial was quick. It was several months. Um, it um, was rather fascinating, actually. I sat through every day of it. Um, and it was, um, and the, the result was that um, Mr. Gailani was found innocent of 284 out of 285 charges. He was not charged with the deaths of the individuals in the embassies um, and or with many other things. And the react, he was found guilty. He's serving a life sentence in, um, in the Supermax in Colorado. But this upset people in the government and people throughout the country, lawyers and judges, in a way that made them decide and put tremendous pressure on the government that they could not bring any more people here from Guantanamo because even though he was found guilty and even though he was serving a life sentence, it was seen as a near acquittal. Mm. Um, And so, you know, you asked how torture played out in the courts. And so in a way, that trial, the issue of torture, which affected this trial and that trial. um, Now, remember, the jury never knew anything about Mr. Gailani being tortured or anything like that. But the trial was enough. They were like, we can't try these cases in federal court. And, And one of the points I try to make in the book is that backing away from the use of the federal courts um, and saying we're not up to this, which is basically one of the lines that that many use, is just not acceptable if you want to live in the kind of democracy we have. Because ultimately, what it does is it it weakens the um, the viability and the legitimacy of the of the courts. Um, and you know what? I think we're going to see that tested in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And that was actually. Um that case study was one that I had a question for later. So you covered that, that perfectly. Um, and to kind of move into the, the second part of the book to go along with what we were talking about, kind of torture in the legal system, you discussed the sanitizing power of bureaucratic language as the CIA sought guidance on the legality of torture techniques. And I found this part particularly fascinating in the book. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the problems that arise when legality, regardless of morality or harm becomes the focus of the inquiry. Yeah. Isn't that so interesting? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, you like, you like, and it's a trap, you know, you start to read these legalized documents, these legal documents, and you just want to say, okay, so what you're saying is that if you read the law a certain way, and if you, and by the way, they were badly written memos, because yes, they they were specific about the law, but they didn't talk about the intent of American law which is to, you know, has this, this core of justice and dignity to it. And so, and, and that, that's just a part of it. The, also the disrespect for language, which we saw later in some of the drone memos, but the idea that you could say one thing and really mean another, like, well, this isn't really torture, you know, because it's not torture because it's not near death. And the real definition of torture would be, you know, the person is, is near death or the simulation of death or whatever. And, and it has to be an intent of psychological pain. It just can't be psychological pain. This has to be intended. And it was, it was, it was just turning the law into a pretzel to say the president um, and those he's authorized want me, you know, want us to authorize torture. And so I'm going to write this memo, John, you being the author, that's going to say that that's what it is. And just, you know, remember, there were lawyers that came into government in, in, in 2004 at the, and looked at these memos. And one of them was, you know, Jim Comey, who's now director of the FBI, as you know, mm-hmm. and said, these are not, these are not acceptable. Um, some were about torture, some were about surveillance. And they weren't just not acceptable, as I understand it, because they were um, morally uncomfortable. They were also legally erroneous. There were major cases, one in particular, that were left out of these memos that were important. And and all of this hinged on um, presidential powers and a rethinking of what presidential powers were under the war on terror. And while they had always been, um, there had always been a dance around presidential powers and what it meant in times of war, the basis of these memos about torture, about detention, about surveillance, about the status of enemy combatants was that um, presidential powers, commander-in-chief powers in time of war were vast and determinative. 
And um, it was a road that we never came back from. Um, and, and again, we're going to see what happens with presidential powers now in a time of war. Mm-hmm. I put, I'm putting quotes in my around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing kind of the, the book uh, goes along the chronology and there's kind of a a turn the the second part of the book is called agents of change and particularly by president bush's second term some of the policies that we spoke about more at the beginning uh, began to move out of the shadows with the revelations about guantanamo ca black sites nsa eavesdropping among other transgressions and can you explain to us the impact of these revelations and how amid these exposures rogue policies also became entrenched more than ever and made their way into the very institutions in which justice was sought and meted out yeah. So when you say us, meaning that we knew, that's a very interesting term because, yes, it's true. The um, second is particularly the second half of the um, uh, Bush presidency and the and the and the latter part of that um, that second term. There were there were a number of reforms that took place that really laid the ground for um, later reforms that Obama put in place. But um, but even before that. Um, there were there were a couple of issues, and the and the two primary issues that I'm going to talk about, although there were more, um, was well, one was military commissions, just establishing actual military commissions, which then became a law rather than just this ad hoc. Maybe we're going to do this. How are we going to do this at Guantanamo? The Supreme Court had said these aren't real military commissions, and Congress had obliged and said, okay, we authorize military commissions. That was in 2006. Obama then um, did his own Military Commissions Act in 2009. But the ones that are that are more interesting in some ways are um, have to do with surveillance uh, and torture. So when the Bush lawyers come in and this is this is earlier uh, on, um, some lawyers come in and say, wait, we what kind of surveillance is going on? Um, And they uh, they were some of them became acquainted with or in, you know, the term they use is were read into uh, surveillance programs, many of which we still don't know about to this day, but some of which were revealed by Edward Snowden and others of which have been um, made clear in a um, in a um, inspector general's report that has come out in part since then, because there was a massive, many faceted uh, surveillance. Um, I don't want to say program set of surveillance programs put in place right after 9-11 that had grown and grown throughout uh, the Bush years. And when these policies are discovered inside the Justice Department in 2004 and onwards, they go to the White House and they say, look, we can't do this. You can't be doing whatever this was. (laughs) This violates the Fourth Amendment and maybe some other things um, and is not um, and as not in line with other uh, legislation about su- surveillance. And the White House first reaction was, um, well, you know what? We'll just do this by ourselves then. We don't need you. Mm-hmm. But these Justice Department lawyers convinced the White House to return these authorities to a special court that had existed for many decades that was there to decide who what the who the government was allowed to eavesdrop on and collect information on um, um, if they were suspected of espionage or terrorism or some kind of foreign intelligence behavior. And um, there are a lot of things about the FISA court um, that are interesting, but the, but what these lawyers did was to say, listen, you need to return this to the FISA court. And the White House agreed. They said, okay, the FISA court can now... Um, can now be the arbiter of what's worrying you about this program. But what, what, what happened then and what the lawyers were thinking inside the Department of Justice at the time was, it's not good enough to return it to the FISA court. This needs to be law. This can't just be something that, oh, we've reinterpreted the law. Now we've reinterpreted the role of the FISA court. We need to pass this through Congress. And so they did. They brought legislation to the floor of Congress, it became known as the FISA Amendments Act, um, and they they um, this is two thousand and eight, and they um, they before the election obviously, and they uh, passed what is known as the FISA Amendments Act, which um, allowed for um, expanded powers of collection of um, of content, and um, in the foreign intelligence arena. 
And um, this, you know, there are two ways to look at this. One is now we, it was lawful, so at least it was lawful. And two was, is that really a law that you want? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so th- I think that's what you're referring to when you say, you know, it, it sort of, they all, so that would be one thing. The other thing is, was the discovery of the torture memos. So the United States at large and the general public around the world finds out about torture in um, 2004 with the revelation in the spring of 2004 with the revelation of the photos from Abu Ghraib, mm-hmm. where um, there had been pictures of abuse put on television uh, in late April. Um, and um, the, the American public reacted like, what? But, you know, it's interesting. Abu Ghraib was not the torture program that was later unearthed. However, lawyers inside the Justice Department discovered the memos that had authorized torture. And a lot of the rest of us did, too. I mean, I published a book that year called The Torture Papers, mm-hmm. all the memos and the early reports. So the information was out there. And um, and what the Justice Department lawyers did was to remove um, one of the memos. But they didn't review all they didn't remove all the memos. And the reason they did that was they were convinced by the intelligence uh, community that to remove these powers in, in their entirety would be they had to have a new system. And therefore, they had to have new memos rather than just revoke the memos. And so eventually new memos were, were rewritten. Um, but it never really got rid of the torture policy as we had known it by the end of the Obama um of the torture authority. The, by the end of the Bush years, the torture program had been essentially ended. Um, and Obama, as you know, you know, declared a firm end to it. Um, but today people are talking about it. So this yeah, is a road yeah. we didn't have to go down. And before we kind of jump into a bit more of the Obama years, um, are, talking about agents of change, are there examples of individuals in your study who stood up against this massaging the law into the shape that would give legal cover for some of the activities the White House was seeking to carry out? And if so, how maybe a couple of examples, how do they fit into this story? Good question. I think there are a number of uh, individuals who try their best to stand up to this. Um, Some of whose names are not public, and so I'm not going to say them. Yeah. (laughs) but I do think there were a number of individuals who stood up um, and who uh, found their way out of government, um, ra- but made their protests known. Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Some of the more powerful. So let me just, you know, the person who discovers these memos um, in late 2003 and begins to really study them in 2004 is Jack Goldsmith. And he sort of prodded along this Passed by another Department of Justice lawyer, um, Pat Philbin. And so, you know, they're the kind of the announcers. Jim Comey played a very strong role, as many know, in the surveillance context, um, also in the context of the memos overall and sort of explaining why um, they wouldn't work. I think a a number of the lawyers in um, the FBI um, and in the Justice Department were very clear about the fact that um, these these authorities were not going to hold up. I think in the later uh, Bush years, when you're talking about issues of international law and violations of international law, when it came to detention and torture and other things, a number of lawyers uh, stood up, or one of them was uh, John Bellinger, um, about whom many have written. Um, so there are people who stood up, but you know what? Not enough. Mm-hmm. And not nobody high enough in authority and nobody high enough in authority who was willing to see what was happening and resign. You know, Jack Goldsmith does resign after nine months. Um, and but but not in a way that said, this is why I'm resigning. And so, you know, as a result, it's been very hard for many um, to put this story back together. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the listeners will have to check out the book because there are some of those examples that pop up. Um, but like you said, perhaps not enough um, to jump to part three again to to turn on to um, the Obama years. What changes did the Obama administration bring forward and in what ways was it perhaps less of a departure from the past as some pra- policies even became more entrenched during that time? Yeah. So the Obama years, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting, you know, call me in five years. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, uh, the Obama years are, are actually very interesting because I think he and his team of lawyers um, very much uh, wanted to to set the pendulum back in the other direction. Um, they, you know, he immediately declared that he was going to close Guantanamo in a year. He um, declared a firm end to torture, even though, you know, anybody who thought it was legal was no longer legal, sort of restored things and tried to put in some new protections. Um, he, as you know, over time, and this isn't exactly legal, but it's important, pull, made it clear that he was going to pull down the troops in Afghanistan, in Iraq, that he was going to defuse this notion of the global war on terror. And he even went so far as to say, we're not going to use that term anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but, but for a lot of reasons, some have to do with his character, some have to do with the character of the country. Um, it was very hard to do what he had accomplished. And the failure that's on everybody's minds right now, there's two of them. Um, one is the failure to close Guantanamo, which now, as, as everybody had feared, uh, remains open. And if anybody wants to repopulate it, that it's physically a possibility. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Um, and the second thing is um, the mm-hmm. issue of, you know, are we going to have expanded What's going to happen with surveillance powers? Did we really ever get to the end of that conversation, I think, is a, another issue of it. And I guess if I'm going to add an, another thing it, that's in the air these days is the notion of accountability for torture, that Obama was firm from day one that he wanted to look forward and not back. He was to declare an end to torture, and he just did not want to deal with it. He didn't want to, he didn't want to rake through the coals people who had been in incredibly difficult circumstances. And for whatever reasons, he didn't want any kind of prosecution, truth commission, anything. And there were a couple of of investigations that were started. There were a couple of law cases that were started in the courts and they were all put away one way or another. And um, it's now seen as um, a major flaw that there was no accountability. And it was something people foresaw, which is that if there is no accountability for this, this could happen again. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it's not a crime to say to, 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 it's not, you know, considered illegal to be thinking about a, um, a torture policy. And I don't mean thinking about it should be illegal, but mm-hmm. the idea that lawyers could be deployed to, to revive this and think about it um, is very interesting. And, and, and perhaps the thing about the, Obama administration that's most interesting is less the legacy, the, the legacy of a specific program than the legacy of executive power and what that means. Because the signature program for Obama that he owns more than he owns Guantanamo or any of these other things is the targeted killing policy, mm-hmm. which has which has led to thousands of deaths um, and which has it killed civilians as well as those who are targeted, which has um, uh, saved the uh, United States from committing its own troops uh, to the battlefield, um, but which has no transparent process. It's an interagency process. It's decided ultimately by the executive. Um, if it's an American citizen, by the president, as as I understand it. What's so interesting when when um, the new president is talking about all these powers and what he's going to do, the issue of drones never comes up. It's as if it's a fait accompli. That's not a contested issue. (laughs) Whereas when you're thinking about what's happened to the protections of the constitution and how, how guilt and innocence is adjudicated and whether or not the chief executive can order a killing, even of an American citizen, it would seem to me that that would be one of the, one of the hot button issues. And yet, it's not. Nobody's thinking about mm. it. I find that um, particularly perplexing um, and interesting. 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 Yeah, you, just to add to that as well, There's um, you were speaking about whether or not certain things had to do with oh, perhaps Obama's personality. And I think that the book does not a good job of that, of, of not only just kind of going over these types of things that we've been talking about, but they also kind of add that personal element that obviously played a role in how some of these decisions were made or, or things played out. Yeah. I mean, I think he's a very, um, you know, he's, he's, he's ambivalent about all of this. He, um, and, and his ambivalence plays out. I mean, in hindsight, you know, when he, he should have closed Guantanamo and then announced it. Mm. 
Um, in hindsight, he should have been better informed about the fact that the, the papers on the individuals in Guantanamo weren't even assembled. So in order for them to assess who should be who should be there and shouldn't be there, it, it just couldn't happen that quickly. You know, in the latter part of his presidency, 2015, 2016, this administration was full steam ahead in getting as many people out of Guantanamo as they could. Um, so lesson learned. But yeah, his um, you know, you kind of feel for Obama. He wants to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just he inherits. It is true. He inherits a, a situation that's somewhat intractable. And he's um, and and he and he doesn't quite what all the things that make him good <laughs> make it really hard for him to to do the groundbreaking things that he probably needed to do. Mm-hmm. And to uh, talk about another individual spoken about in the book, um, the documents made public by Edward Snowden showed that the NSA was conducting this executive order uh, dragnet surveillance plain and simple is the way you put it. And you say that Snowden made it impossible for the government to continue to operate in the manner in which it had been accustomed since 9-11. And, and what were the consequences of this and, and the, those revelations brought forward? Oh, my goodness. It's a trick question. <laughs> yeah. um, so good, you know, who knows what, what the consequences are? You know, there's the doom day, the doomsayers, which is, oh, my God, you know, it's going to cause so much destruction. Um which, uh, to my knowledge, we haven't seen, but, you know, um, the, the, the thing you, you, you have to realize about Edward Snowden is that he changed the course of American history for the better mm-hmm. in terms of what was going on in mo- it, 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 when it comes to constitutional issues and constitutional power and the whole notion of who the people are and whether the government's accountable to them. The fact that people were being surveilled without any kind of um, notification, um, the fact that they look where even today there are court cases where individuals have been brought to court and not told that the FISA Amendments Act was used to uncover the evidence, you know, to give the evidence that that initially triggered their the investigation into them. We're still in the midst of sorting through the kinds of things that Snowden revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Patriot Act sunset it. It sunset it because it was illegal, not even on constitutional grounds, because it was illegal, because that on the face of it was not what the Patriot Act, according to the Second Circuit here in New York, um, determined. Right. Mm-hmm. So so what Snowden did, you can say whatever you want about Snowden, but what he did was a service to the country. There's no getting around it. Mm-hmm. And now we know these things. And now we can decide as citizens, is this really something we want? This is one place where the courts did step up, step up you know, and then Congress stepped up by not renewing um, those parts of the Patriot Act that had to do with the the, the abuse of surveillance. And passing the USA Freedom Act. So um, to say that that he wasn't instrumental to restoring a sense of uh, decency and justice to the American system would would be false. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think a line from the book, you kind of talk about how it went uh, perhaps with the public from the view. I think it was traitor to whistleblower, if that's correct, kind of how that shifted to to kind of take it into know he's blowing the whistle on this type of behavior, which I found interesting. Um, okay, and the last question I have on the, the last kind of section of the book before we jump into the epilogue is, at the end of 2014, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released the results of a five-year investigation into the Enhanced Interrogation Program. And what was the significance of this report and the consequences of its revelations on CIA practices? Good question. Um, I think well before that, the CIA had not been torturing since before the, um, you know, actually in 2006, in the fall of 2006, uh, President Bush convenes, you know, the press and says, look, you know, I know we said we didn't have this um, what they called an enhanced interrogation program, what I call a torture program. We didn't, and many call it that. Um, Mm -hmm. We didn't, I know we said we didn't do it, but we did. Um, it was secret. Now we're taking these individuals and we're moving them to Guantanamo. And, you know, the idea was that from then forward, it, they kind of ended this program. And it was certainly on its, you know, if, if they ha- to, to anybody's knowledge, we don't really have a lot of evidence of uh, any evidence of torture after that or organized torture. So it seemed to have ended, 
in theory by the end of in practice by the end of the Bush administration and then in in legality with the uh, beginning of the Obama administration. This report was a uh, 6,000 page report that had been commissioned by Senator Dianne Feinstein. um, And it was to go through all of the available material, some of which, you know, had been destroyed, but what had not been destroyed of um, what actually happened at these black sites, who had been, tortured, what were the techniques that were used, what was the information that had been gotten, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the report came out eventually after the CIA passed on it and the White House passed on it. It eventually came out in a 600-page executive summary rather than the full report. Um, And this is a summary that the takeaway that the committee And the writers of the report want you to take away is that torture uh, did not work, that time after time when you tortured individuals, they they gave either erroneous information or information that did not lead to the stopping of any particular terrorist attack, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the repeated um, um, uh, line throughout the report. It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Um, what's interesting about that is that you now see people trying to talk about torture again. And I think saying it doesn't work is, it's always kind of bothered me a little bit because even if it does work, you really want to torture people? Mm-hmm. Really? And, and let me, I mean, it's, it's wrong and it's wrong on so many levels. And so, yeah, it's counterproductive and we can go into that. It's immoral and we can go into that. It doesn't work and we can go into that. And by the way, it's also extremely illegal mm-hmm. <laughs> under yeah. American law, under international law. The idea that it, it doesn't work. It, let, let me just explain some security issues about this. It, the, the idea of torture is often tied to the idea of the ticking bomb, ticking time bomb, right? Mm-hmm. Except there are no instances of this, where, except for in the movies, where we've had a ticking time bomb, you know, in the terrorist scenario and needed to torture somebody. And in other instances, in, in criminal cases of, you know, individual um, criminals and, and things like that, when somebody um, is, is tortured for whatever reason, to find somebody who's been kidnapped or whatever it is, or the the police abuse them, they go to court and they tell their side of the story. And this is why I did what I did. And they're either found guilty or innocent. They're not given carte blanche as a national state policy or, or, you know, police doctrine to just torture people. Um, And if my hunch is that if you think you have in your back pocket that you can just round up a guy and torture him and that that'll give you the information you want, Number one, you're not getting your information fast enough. And two, really good intelligence statecraft and any good intelligence agent will tell you is intelligence, is infiltration and collection and understanding what you need to know and understanding how to figure out your enemy from your non-enemy. So the entire uh, arena of conversation about torture is fraught with um, problems. And I just, I wish is the one thing we could take off the American agenda, even the conversation. I just mm-hmm. I don't understand why we're having it. Yeah, that that report is very fascinating. And uh, anyone who kind of takes an extra interest in this type of topic, um, it's long, but there's a lot of really interesting things in it. it talks about how uh, they they were praised, not the report, but there would be CIA praise for torture, releasing information, but it was the years didn't match up. So it would be someone was you know, tortured in 2003, but the person that they were talking about was captured in 2002. It just, there's a lot of fascinating things going on and kind of how things don't match up. So. Yeah. And other rebuttals by other people who have written books, you know, like Ali Sifan, Black Banders, in which he tells about the story about one, um, you know, very well-known captive, uh, uh, Abu Zubaydah, and their, their stories just don't match up. Um, so, I mean, I should also say about this full report, it is, there is tremendous controversy now because there's worry that the report's going to be destroyed. And so mm. a couple of judges, one at Guantanamo, one um, in the federal court system has said that they need to preserve the, the uh, report itself in its entirety for these court cases that are about Guantanamo detainees because it's important to the court case itself. And Obama has said that it, a copy needs to be preserved for with his papers for his presidential library. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are all these efforts to make sure that it doesn't just disappear. 
Yeah, for a good reason. Okay, and, and to kind of take that to the epilogue and kind of moving moving forward from there, um, you conclude, I think it's in the introduction that you say that to this day, the government continues to overreach in the name of keeping the nation safe. Um, however, your study does indicate by the end of the book that there were kind of, there's a possible tide that was uh, turning. Um, but more with recent events, are there still glimmers of hope that the momentum will continue in that positive direction? Or are there indications that, especially with the new Trump administration, that things uh, may worsen or regress? Yeah, this is not a good week for this question. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if you take the president as his, at his word, things look terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I argue is that the pendulum swing had was starting to swing back, but there was no chance that it was really going to return to, to where it once was. Um, now it seems that we're um, reliving the past. I mean, you know, I run a um, this uh, institute, which as part of what we do, we do a lot of research um, and other things, but we also host numerous public events every year, sort of bring issues into the public discussion. And I noticed that our, our events um, next month are on first on Guantanamo and then on torture. I'm like, isn't that what I did 10 years ago? Yeah. Like what, what just happened? So, um, so I do, I am not um, hopeful in the immediate. I'm hopeful in the long term because I do believe that there's, that, that there's enough momentum. There's enough buy-in. There's enough understanding of who we want to be as people, that there will be a sort of, community protest that does not have partisan boundaries. I mean, the CIA is not, as we've seen, a number of CIA officials, you know, including John Brennan, they are not going to support torture. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the military. They're not going to do it. So you're going to have people that are often considered, oh, you know, those are people, you know, we don't always bond with from the civil liberties community. I think we're all going to be on the same side. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there's a general understanding that the law as we have it works, that um, that there was a sense of overreach, that and initially that was understandable because of the kind of panic you referred to, that it took us a long time to come out of it, that we're still coming out of it for a variety of reasons, um, and that, that the country needs the chance to move beyond this period of time and not to you know, make it the law of, of, of the land. I, I, I want this to be the last gasp of something that needs to go away. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of an overarching theme to the book, um, you discuss how fear guides policy and, and kind of an overall takeaway. What can we learn about the dangers of indulging those fears? Yeah, what we can learn is that we need to trust ourselves and not just our president and not just our government. And that Fear is one of the, for some reason, human beings are very susceptible to fear. Um, they're scared of being sick. You know, they're sp- scared of um, um, diseases. They're sc- we're scared. And our, our government has not once since 9-11 said to us, you know what? We put trillions of dollars into our military intelligence system. We haven't had a foreign terrorist attack on American soil in 15 years. You are safer. Mm-hmm. Relax. Feel good. Live your life. Believe in this, in your future. We're okay. And nobody said that. And now you see a situation where all of a sudden we're hunkering down again. And it's not, you know, human needs to, humans need to breathe. They need to, they need to be able to expand who they are, not curtail who they are. And right now we're sitting on the precipice of, of, of an even broader sense of fear, because now there's a fear of, oh, can I say that form of protest without being in trouble? Can I write something on the Internet without being in trouble? So the, the First Amendment fears, which we didn't talk about here, are now, um, you know, are now even larger, along with the Fourth Amendment fears, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, at a time when I really think the American people um, should have been told, you know what, I'm sorry, this country has has taken care of what it needed to take care of. We have a fantastic intelligence system, a fantastic law enforcement system. We understand terrorism. We, we're getting to this. We're going to deal with each problem as it comes. Instead, they've been told repeatedly for 15 years, we should be scared. The enemy is is big and broad and growing. And and we need some a reality check here about who we are and what we've accomplished. Mm-hmm. And to go along with that, any other recommendations you'd have to kind of alter or perhaps disrupt this course of overreaching? 
you know, I think it's really important to go back to basics and to say, for reasons we don't understand, and I don't even understand them, there is something peculiar about the fact that the founders, when they wrote the Constitution, the founding fathers, when they wrote the Constitution, created the sense of no executive, you know, no killing by the king's decree, no... um and, you know, free speech had to be allowed, um, no certain, no general warrant, no general roundups, no general arrests. Um, and, and, and it turns out that those are the things that keep us safer because identifying individuals who, who want you ill, identifying things that are actual real problems is what makes you safer. Not saying the aggregate, all Muslims are, we have to pay attention. Are you kidding? The way to understand who is going to cause you harm, as any good intelligence agent will tell you, or law enforcement agent, is specificity and evidence, and not some kind of theory of, um, you know, generic theory. And and this is the thing to focus on. It has been a problem since the beginning of, of the war on terror, and it, it is it is the heart of our criminal justice system, and we need to stand up for it. Fascinating. Well, Karen, we've taken up a lot of your time and we thank you so much. And one final question for you. Uh, what are you working on now? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, now I'm thinking about um, the way to understand what's happening now in the country with some of these um, ISIS cases. Mm-hmm. These young kids, some of them 16, 18, some of them younger, who are attracted by this, you know, immersion into social media by a kind of violence that triggers them. The ideology of ISIS, I'm not sure what triggers them, but I think the the violence and the anger of it does. Um, And how to rethink what the where law enforcement begins and where maybe before law enforcement, there needs to be some civic organization um, that deals with um, helping children who are not making their way into a constructive future for themselves in society and beginning to think about how to, how to help them, how to help their parents, and who needs to be in on this conversation. So that's what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Wow, that sounds like a great project. And we want to thank you uh, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And take care. Thank you so much, Shannon. <laughs> 